Well, now that we're not going to be baptized with uh, the heat from the fire. One of the great treasures of the prayer book and the liturgical tradition is the sanctification time. In church time, right now, you and I are not just in the new year, 2019, marked by the ball dropping in Times Square and the football kickoff at the Super Bowl to come, but instead, we've come through the seasons of Advent and Christmas, now to the season of Epiphany. My grandmother, bless her heart, as they say down here, the wife of a Lutheran pastor in the upper Midwest, used to come to church on Sunday mornings in outfits that matched the colors of a liturgical calendar. She really did this. She wore white for feast days. She'd be wearing white today. She'd wear purple for Lent. She'd wear green for ordinary time. She had a collection of matching hats, so on and so forth. My grandmother was very zealous in her faith. And she may be a somewhat unusual example, but I have to give her credit. In her own way, I think she was trying to order her whole life to transform her imagination around the rhythms and the seasons of church time, God's time, instead of just the time of the secular world where it's just one thing after another. You see, ordering our lives, transforming our imaginations to church time, God's time, is a way of learning to see the time of our lives inside the great story of God. Your life, it says, isn't a story that you tell just for yourself, from birth to getting ahead in the world and raising your family to retirement to death. Our lives are more than the story of Texas, from the Alamo all the way to last night's cowboy game, or the story of America, from the revolution to the next election. By the way, this shows I'm not from around here. I forgot to see if they won. Did they win? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why nobody was on the streets. <laughs> it wasn't humiliating, though. All right, all right. They made a good show. I watched the Duke game instead. That show was right in my mind. Anyway. We all are more forgiving. <laughs> well, all of these are good stories, and they do have their place, right? I'm not trying to say that they don't. But when they are the only way that we know how to tell the story of the time of our lives, I think that we get ourselves into trouble. All of us, of course, want our lives to mean something. We want to be part of a story that's going somewhere, even if it's the story of the cowboys or the Duke Blue Devils or whatever it might be. And we have a tendency to make things fit into the story that we want to hear, even if it means, well, improving on the truth a little. You probably know something of what I mean. We sometimes like to make ourselves into the heroes of our story, whether we deserve it or not, and other people into the cartoon villains, even if the truth is a little more complicated than that. We sometimes tell the story of the group that we belong to a little more kindly than the truth will bear, don't we? And we tell the story of the group we don't belong to a little less kindly than they deserve. We do this kind of thing, I think, because we desperately want to tell a story about our lives that makes sense, has a good ending. We want to be part of something larger than ourselves. There are other stories we tell. We might buy into the kind of story that says that 
Our lives are only worthwhile if we make a lot of money and buy the big house and the nice car. And either we pat ourselves on the back when we feel like we've made it, or we feel like a failure when we haven't. We might tell a story about our lives where we're the holy and righteous martyrs. No one appreciates us, and everything is someone else's fault. I could go on. There are lots of stories that you and I tell. They come in all shapes and sizes. And what they have in common, I think, is to some extent they're all based on either lies or half-truths at best. As the essayist Joan Didion put it, they're stories that we tell ourselves in order to live. If any of you watched the show Mad Men on AMC a few years ago about ad executives in the 1960s, you know that it was all about exactly this. <coughs> that is, advertisements that sold people stuff based on stories that they wanted to believe and that they want other people to believe about themselves, made by an office full of people who were basically selling themselves the same stories. The stories that we tell ourselves tend too often to be stories also that divide, that rely on making ourselves look good at the expense of someone else. I don't know about you, but I think that our country's politics are absolutely full of this right now. <coughs> Actually, if we replace the entire government with people randomly chosen from the phone book, we'd probably approve upon them. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. The sanctification of time, church time, God's time, means learning to see our lives first and foremost as inside God's story. The story of the God who created all things, who gave us new life and salvation in Jesus Christ, and who is at work even now to restore and renew all things on the way to the fullness of the kingdom of God. One of the great blessings we have at this church is that this church is the most diverse community that I've ever been a part of in all kinds of ways. That includes the college that I went to that I think mostly just succeeded at being a community of rich kids of every color. Brothers and sisters, I'm quite confident that there is no story that we can tell ourselves in this church that's big enough to include all of us, and honest enough to be true, unless it's the great story of the mighty acts of God. That, I think, is why what we do, why we do what we do here. There is a story that includes us all. And it's a story that's true, where you and I don't have to be the heroes or the saviors. We can be absolutely honest about our sins and our failures. Jesus is the center of this story, and he's our only Savior and Lord. In Sunday morning Bible study for this season, the season of Epiphany, we're going to be reading through St. Paul's letter to the Colossians, starting today, which sets forth a vision of Christ as the center of all things, in whom all things hold together. Mother Emily and my hope and our prayer for this church is that we become more and more that kind of place, a community of people from all walks of life, drawn together and held together in Jesus Christ alone, the Savior and Lord of us all. We think this neighborhood and this world needs some of that.
It's our prayer that people would come here and see the love we have for one another and for our neighbors and say to themselves, what's going on here? How can I find some of that? Well, that was, you might say, a really long sermon introduction. And I'd apologize, except that I wanted to set the stage for the season of Epiphany. You'll remember, of course, that Advent began in the dark as we waited for God's salvation to come. And then at Christmas, the light came on all in a rush. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Epiphany now is meant to be the season where all of us, like the, the three kings, come to Bethlehem to see the Lord. That's Epiphany. It's a season that focuses on seeing Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us at Christmas. And now, in Epiphany, we are called to stay a while with this one called Jesus. Who is he? Have we really seen who this Jesus is, or is the Jesus we thought we knew much smaller than the real thing? For the rest of the season of Epiphany, the next seven weeks, Mother Emily and I are going to be preaching each Sunday on some aspect of who Jesus is, following the readings that we have in the lectionary. So I encourage you to come each week and follow along, and at home as well, really make this season a time of focus on seeing the face of Christ. Now to today's Gospel lesson, finally. The story of the baptism of Christ. It's meant to serve as a foundation for what we're going to read about Jesus for the rest of the season of Epiphany. Listen to it again. John the Baptist, we all remember him from our, uh, our good friend from the season of Advent, kicks off Epiphany by saying that the one he was sent to prepare the way for is here. I was just baptizing with water, he said, as a sign of repentance to get us ready for Jesus. But now, this guy is the real deal. He, you might say, is bringing the heat He's not just taking you down to the water and getting you wet, but instead, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says that Christ's winnowing fork is in his hand, which you can imagine as a kind of long pitchfork that you'd take, use to take wheat and throw it into the air so that the wind would take the chaff, the husks, the worthless parts, and blow them away while the good kernels of wheat would fall back down to the threshing floor. And then Jesus asks John to baptize him. And he does. And this time, what happens isn't just the object lesson on repentance that John had been doing, but the very first real deal Holy Spirit and fire baptism in the history of the world. The heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and a voice says, You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. I want to focus on three things that I think we see in this story about Jesus. First, this story gives us an amazing glimpse of the identity of Jesus. Not just as the son of Mary, we know that from Christmas, but also as the eternal son of God. Young people, and really all of us, I think, from time to time, often struggle with the question of identity and self-worth. Who am I? What's my place in the world? 
Am I going to amount to anything? Or did I amount to anything? Does anyone care about me? None of this, you see, is ever even a question for Jesus. Can you imagine this? Before you embark on your career, right? He's a young man. When you're still just this carpenter's son from a small town with no reputation, you're unmarried, you're unknown, then you are enveloped with a voice that comes from above and goes right down to your core. This voice tells you, you are my son, my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Answers all your questions, doesn't it? About who you are and whether you're worth anything. If that happened to you, you wouldn't need any other story than that. It'd be, I think, an assurance, a sense of meaning and worth in your life that would carry you through anything, even if it meant one day walking the way of the cross. That's first. Second, the fact that this affirmation comes at Jesus' baptism tells us, I think, something extraordinary about his role as our Savior. Jesus, you know, didn't have to be baptized. Didn't have to become incarnate, either. John's baptism was for repentance. But Jesus, well, he had nothing to repent of. So why was he doing this? Well, he took, he took this on all the same. And I think he did it for us. By being baptized, I think Jesus was showing his solidarity with us sinners. He was plunged under the water to symbolize our death to sin and raised up out of the water to symbolize new life, forgiveness, and a fresh start, a new creation. Only with Jesus, none of this was just a symbol. Here, finally, it was. In Jesus, the new man, the new Adam, the new creation of humanity itself, free finally, from the spider's web of sin and disease and death that every one of us gets stuck in. Third, and this, finally, is the really good part. John tells us that this baptism isn't just for Jesus. It's for all of us. Jesus offers to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's going to be his mission as Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the promised and anointed one, the Savior. Jesus wants to take your life with his winnowing fork and throw it up into the air. To let the wind of the Spirit burn away the chaff, all of the sin, everything you've gathered together that's worthless, that you need to get rid of. The sins you hate but can't get free of, and the anxieties and burdens you can no longer carry. And when the wheat falls down on the threshing floor and you rise up out of the water, all that remains is who God created you to be. As the poet Hopkins said, in a flash, at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he is what I am. And this jack, joke, poor potsherd, match, matchwood, immortal diamond, is immortal diamond. Brothers and sisters, by faith and grace, 
baptized into Christ and alive in the Spirit, our Father says to us as well, You too are my sons. You too are my daughters, my beloveds. With you, I am well pleased. Can you imagine it? Who needs any other story 